I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. And that is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. This is Ravi Gupta, co-founder of the Arena. Today we hear from Jason Kander, who's the co-founder of Let America Vote, a national voting rights organization. Jason was also previously the Secretary of State of Missouri and was a U.S. Senate candidate from Missouri. Jason gives a speech uh, at our Detroit summit and then is joined by Jocelyn Benson, who was a candidate for, for Michigan Secretary of State, now runs a national nonprofit organization. Let's jump in. Thank you all so much for having me, Ravi. Thank you. This is like pretty cool this is legit now like I I just can't I mean it was legit before but like they have like I just got here they have like little staff badges this is some serious stuff going on at arena I'm impressed uh, I how many raise your hand if you were there in was it Nashville was our was the first one okay cool well awesome you you're in luck I didn't ask because I was like gonna give the same speech don't worry I'm not um, I asked because what I was thinking, I was thinking as we were running in here to, to be here on time, I was thinking about how different just everything feels right now than it felt then. You can, somebody I think almost applauded, that's okay. I'm not like gonna go Jeb Bush on you and say like, please clap, but like, I'm excited. I'm excited about how different things are right now. Do you remember how right before, and I'm gonna talk about Let America Vote in just a second, but do you remember how right before the election, uh, everybody would say, even, even people who were really pleased with how they thought things were going to go, whatever, everybody would say, God, I can't wait till we're not talking about politics anymore. Do you remember that? <laughs> everybody was like, I can't wait till I turn on my TV and it's not politics. Have you heard anybody say that? <laughs> no, me either. When we were together in Nashville, you remember how we all felt? Like, my son, who's almost four, he does this thing where when he really wants attention, he's like, well, I'm sad. And he, like, kind of just, you know, and... He's not really sad. He just you know, wants you to, oh, buddy, why are you sad? And, but we really were, right? Like everybody was like, oh, you know, with their arms hanging. And then, then what happened? This sort of thing, and honestly, the women's march. Like that, I mean, that's what happened. Like, that is. So sometimes, it, I just think sometimes it's helpful to, to step back and, and look at where things are and where things were. And just remember that, that that sort of just changed so much when everybody said, oh, you know what? I think, I think we can fight back against this. And, and I think what's happened is we all recognize that while Donald Trump might have won the election, he didn't win the argument about who America is or where America's going. Like, we actually won that argument. And we're still winning that argument. So with that said, let me tell you what I'm doing. Um, so after the election, uh, when I heard at the time President-elect Trump say that three to five million folks voted illegally in the election, which he maintains that lie. I argue, by the way, that that is the biggest lie that a sitting president has ever told. I don't know what number two, three, and four are, but I know who told them, all right? But, <laughs> but I think that one's the biggest. Make it beat soon, I don't know. But when, when he said that, I think a lot of people, maybe a lot of people in this room, exclusively heard, and this is understandable, just a deeply insecure human being you know, coming up with a lie that he could tell himself and the country about why he lost the popular vote. That's probably also right. 
okay? But there's more to it than that. The reason that, uh, you know, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and a whole bunch of other folks in the Republican Party didn't immediately say, okay, that's a lie, that's not true, is because it's very helpful to the cause that they've had politically over the last 15 years or so. And I say politically, this is not a policy difference between the parties, okay, it's not. It is a political strategy by the Republicans over about the last 15 years to make it harder for folks who are really unlikely to vote Republican to vote. It is, it's just a political strategy. And it shouldn't be in a policy box. It should be kept over here in the box where you think about where they run TV ads or which doors they knock on or messaging, that kind of thing. That's what it is. It's purely political strategy. And so when he said that, it was very helpful to them in getting it out into the ether, the idea that there's something fundamentally wrong in the logistics of American democracy and therefore you need to clamp down and you need to make it harder to vote. That's what they're trying to do. So I was the Secretary of State of Missouri for four years. I was the chief election official of the state supermajority Republican legislature. I've seen, up close, the voter suppression playbook. There's really three major steps to the voter suppression playbook. Step one is you convince people that uh, democracy's not working. You convince people that there's widespread fraud. Never mind the fact that statistically, you are more likely as an American to be struck by lightning than you are to commit voter impersonation fraud. That's not relevant to them because it's not a policy difference. They just need to make people believe that that's step number one. Step two, you create obstacles to voting. Step three, you create obstacles to the obstacles. That's it, that's the voter suppression playbook. So I knew that that's what was happening. And then when you combine that with the fact that most of the voting rights victories that we've had over the last 15 years or so while they've been doing this have been in court, and rightfully so. And the people who have brought those cases and made those arguments have done tremendous work and it's still incredibly important. But what I realized with Jeff Sessions making the Department of Justice switch sides in court, like picking up the papers at one council table and moving over to the other, because now they're for voter suppression and not for voters, combined with the fact that President Trump gets to pick the judges, it suddenly becomes very urgent that for the first time, that argument that we were having in the court of law has to now expand into the court of public opinion. So for the first time, we really urgently have to start winning this political argument. And the first part of that is we have to actually start waging it. So that's what we did. So in February, we created Let America Vote. Um, advisory board is great. It's everybody from Martin Luther King III to um, John Favreau, not the movie guy, the speech guy. <laughs> I do that to John a lot. Um, and uh, anyway, anyway, uh, to, you know, Cecile Richards, Stephanie Shriok, and uh, Bradley Whitford from the West Wing. So it's, it's a, a very national uh, project. And the whole idea in what we're doing is to create political consequences for folks who make it harder to vote. That's it. It's real simple. And I'll give you one example and then we'll, we'll move to, to this conversation we're gonna have. But uh, y'all are probably following the election in the sixth district in Georgia a little bit, John Ossoff. I was down there campaigning with him recently. Before that, Let America Vote looked at that race and, and noticed that all this money's being spent on messaging, but the thing that nobody was really looking at was that the election officials there were uh, closing down early voting locations, particularly in, in parts of the district uh, where that fits in with the strategy, right? Parts of the district where folks were a lot less likely to vote Republican. So we put an effort together on the ground. We put a lot of pressure on the Secretary of State who wants to run for governor, a Republican. We put pressure on the local election board, had people call in, ran some radio ads. They caved, they reopened, this is just one example of what we've done. They reopened uh, an early voting location. That turned out to be, in the primary, the biggest turnout early voting location uh, in, in the district. Um, so, or one of the biggest. 
And so I, I, that's just one example of when you create political consequences for people doing something that they shouldn't be doing, it affects their actions. So that's what we're doing. And then one last thing before we start the conversation, uh, this energy that you feel like in this room and around the country, it's quite real. And I just wanted you to know that. I've been getting around the country a bit. I've had a lot of invitations. Um, I'm going to be in Phoenix tonight. And woke up in Kansas City, so I get three time zones today. Um, but I'll just tell you a quick story. I was in uh, Tennessee recently to speak to the Tennessee de Democrats. We did a bunch of events, and this really nice woman named Dawn picked me up, and she drove me around all day to different events. And I had the impression, I just thought she knew everybody. Dawn must be the ace number one longtime MVP volunteer of the Tennessee Democratic Party. So that night she's dropping me off at the airport. I'm going to go back to Kansas City. And I asked Dawn, how many years have you been volunteering with the party here? And Dawn says, years? She's like, I've been volunteering since January 20th, 2017. <laughs> and she said, and I have done something that you would consider activism every single day since. And I hear a story like that everywhere I go. So, you know, they have the power, but we have the momentum. And I'm pretty excited about it. So thank you. Um, And now, I've never introduced anyone who's going to interview me before, so this is cool. Uh, but so I'm going to introduce Jocelyn. Jocelyn is super impressive, um, so much so that of all the things that were written down for me, it doesn't even include that you went to Harvard Law, right? Like, so she's like, pretty impressive. Um, that was my safety. I didn't go, um, no. Um, <laughs> no, I didn't even apply, like, let's be honest. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, wasn't going to happen. But anyway. Uh, First thing, so she was just appointed to the uh, Michigan State Advisory uh, Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Uh, she, and I would say applaud for each one, but there's a lot of stuff, so let's just, so, because she's like accomplished. Um, she uh, is the CEO of RISE, which is the Ross Initiative for Sports Equality. She spent four years as the dean of Wayne State Law School. She was appointed the dean at 36. With, I'm 36, so I think that's super young. Uh, she was the youngest woman in U.S. history to lead a top 100 law school. You can applaud for, for that one. I think that's good. Um, yeah. She's the author of Secretaries of State, Guardians of the Democratic Process. She was the 2010 Democratic candidate for Michigan Secretary of State here. She is the founder of the nonpartisan Michigan Center. Uh, for, I don't know. You say that when you get up here. Election law. It's on the back. Uh, <laughs> yes, there it is. It's, it kept going. And she's on the uh, board of directors of the Southern Poverty Law Center. We've met a few times before. I think she's great. Bring her up here with me. She has to get a mic because I think she's going to beatbox for us. Is that right? Yeah, that's the plan. Maybe if we really ask her. No, I'm just kidding. Around. Hi, everybody. Uh, Jason, great to have you here in Michigan, in Detroit. Uh, great we've to be been, here. Uh, all of us here, I know, uh, have been big fans of everything you've been doing, uh, and uh, particularly with now uh, Let America Vote. I'm really excited because, as someone who's also really devoted my whole career to amplifying people's voices in the political process, this is a really incredible moment where we have an opportunity to get to this goal of full turnout, full engagement, particularly of young people and people of color. So thank you for everything you're doing to lead the way. And I know part of what your mission is at Let America Vote is to really capture the political narrative of uh, uh, voting rights and engagement in a healthy democracy. 
And it's been frustrating for me and others over the years because we see oftentimes that narrative taken by the other side. We talk about voter fraud, we talk about voter ID and being used to really advocate for laws that will suppress the vote. So I'm curious for how we can take that political narrative back uh, and win with momentum for voting rights. Uh, yeah, I get that question a lot. Sort of like, well, how do we beat them on this argument? Um, so the first part of it is uh, we have to make the argument, right? So a lot of times people are like, oh, but we've been losing on this argument for so long. And I'm like, well, how many arguments do you win that you don't make, right? So that's the first part. Uh, one example for it is Obamacare, right? Like, I just saw a poll this morning where the Trump care is at 17%, and I think the last time I looked, Obamacare is at like 55, 60%, right? And there are a lot of factors, but one of the factors is is that for a really long time, everybody was like, well, I don't know if I want to embrace that. I'm not sure. And then when, you know, I have a friend who has a saying, he says, courage is the lack of options. And and <laughs> and, uh, and so when you, when you think about it, we got to a point where everyone in the party was like, well, we don't really have a choice. We probably better embrace this or it's going to go away. And then everybody started making the argument for it, right? An honest, very passionate argument. And now it's like close to twice as popular as the president, uh, the current president. So, um, which I guess is not the best way to mark that because he's like pretty unpopular. So it's 55% is a good number is my point. So when you make an argument, you're more likely to win it. And, and uh, that's the first part. The second part is um, I compare, the other thing I compare this to is uh, the um, flag burning amendment debate that used to be a very common debate. Uh, and you know, when, if you would ask people, even back when you, you would pull that and you'd say, you know, do you think it should be against the, the law to burn the flag? Probably 80% of people would say yes. But then if you asked them to rank it in like their top 20 issues, like it wasn't going to break the top 20. It's not going to help their kid get into college. It's not going to put food on their table. It's not going to raise their wages. And so if you add to that, what if putting that uh, amendment uh, against burning the flag in the U.S. Constitution was also going to cost everybody money? It'd probably be way lower than 80%. Well, that's photo ID, for instance. That's a lot of these voter suppression laws. It is not something, people have their opinion, uh, you know, wh when you just ask just a basic, what do you think about this? But then, you know, if you would ask them to rank it, it's not a high intensity level thing. They don't, because they know that fraud is not some widespread problem. And then the second part of it is that to institute those sort of things, it costs a ton of money. So you probably got to raise people's taxes. And so uh, a lot of it is just a practical argument. And then the other part that we do is we make sure people understand that it is quite partisan what they're doing, right? Because Republican elected officials like this because it makes it easier for them to win. Republican voters, the average Republican voter or independent voter, they look at something like this and they go, wait a minute, so you're, you want to change the rules so that one party is more likely to win? They don't care necessarily that it's their party. They're just like, that doesn't seem right. I don't want you to do that to the system. And, and so accurately putting it in that box of partisan politics makes a big difference too. Yeah. And I know also, I mean, one of the, one of the um, ways we met early on when you first became Secretary of State was at a conference on uh, Secretaries of State and opportunities for uh, clerks and other election officials to really champion administrative decisions as well as laws that will, that will open up the voting process. And with so many people here thinking about running for office, uh, can you talk a little bit about how important those offices are and how you can as a local election official, as a, as a clerk at the county or city level or as a Secretary of State, through your own experience, you've seen it, how can you really have an impact uh, in, in moving the ball forward in uh, increasing opportunities to vote? It's probably the best place to move the ball forward. Um, 
you know, one of the th the story I told was really about uh, you know doing something to affect the actions of some very local officials, right? And and this is this is what the other side has done over the last decade plus, particularly the Koch brothers, right? They looked at it and they said, hey. You know, it's not just about a farm team for them, it's about controlling the machinery of government. The difference is, we want to control the machinery, machinery of government to make it fair for everybody. That's, I don't, I don't want to disappoint anybody, that's not what they're doing it for, right? <laughs> like, I hope, I hope everybody was sitting, you know, I'm glad you're sitting down like that. But, so, and so that's incredibly important. Um, you know, county clerks, uh, recorders in some states are in charge of elections, but all sorts of different offices. It's also, uh, where you're in a best position to make the argument to the folks that are there local, because you really get to know. Like when I was a state representative, I got to really know my constituents uh, in a real way and could have real conversations with them. And on the other hand, you've got Katherine Harris, who we remember in the 2000 election, changed the outcome of a presidential election by refusing to do a recount. Ken Blackwell in Ohio, uh, not putting enough polling places in, in certain areas in 2004, leading to eight-hour wait times in Cleveland. Then we have, of course, Chris Kobach today and many others. So if we're in a state where you have a secretary of state who is the, on the other side of these issues. Like, I don't know, <laughs> Michigan? Is that one? <laughs> or uh, or yeah, there, are, there, are, there are many, as you know. Uh, I'm... Uh, I what what are <laughs> what are the options uh, for uh, folks in the audience who are who are in a state where a Secretary of State is not championing democracy? Two things. One is the obvious one: um, beat them in an election. Uh, you know, look, that's uh, election, elections have consequences. I mean, that's that's what's happening in the country right now. I mean, a, a lot of the time, people ask me like, "What can I do right now?" And I'm like, "Pick a date on the calendar." preferably an election day, and figure out who you're going to help, because that's what makes a difference. Uh, and then number two, you can uh, well, you can get involved with Let America Vote. We're putting a lot of pressure on secretaries of state to do the wrong thing. You know, anybody involved with elections, state legislators, I mean, uh, in, uh, in Virginia, we, we, we're getting really involved. They have a, uh, a bill that uh, the governor vetoed, but they're trying to get enough of a supermajority where they can overrule it. This bill, there's a bunch to choose from, but this is my favorite. Uh, it's one that makes it where if you're gonna vote absentee, you have to send in a photocopy of your driver's license with your ballot, right? Because, you know, blue collar folks and all the rest of us just have Xerox machines at home. I mean, it's no big deal. Obviously, we don't. That's why they're doing it, right? Uh, and so we're gonna put a whole bunch of people on the ground in Virginia uh, this summer to make sure that they're not successful in doing that and that they still have a governor who would veto a bill like that. Um, so create political consequences. Make sure people know about it. Um, you know, when you think about the other issues out there, when, when, a, when a, somebody in a swing state or a swing district and they're a Republican and they're thinking about how they're gonna vote on a labor issue or on a choice issue, they know that there's going to be a political force that works against them if they vote against that political force on that issue. And no matter what they say, it probably affects the decision that they make. Well, there's no interest group called Big Voter. It doesn't exist, right? So they are going to continue to operate in an environment that assumes there is no political consequence until we create one. So you can do that. You can go to letamericavote.org. We've been around over three months, um, just a little over three months, and 55,000 folks nationwide have gone uh, and signed up to volunteer. That's so great. be one of them. Great work. So I know one of the other... 
one of the other challenges has been is, is we all have uh, different issues that really drive us, whether it's uh, advocating for economic equity, advocating for justice, criminal justice reform, healthcare access, education access. So how do you, how do you get uh, those of us who have an energy for one of those other issues to really connect or focus on uh, the, the voting rights issues as uh, a, uh, um, a baseline for addressing everything else? You know, one of the coolest things about this actually has been that that has not been a challenge. I, I don't think I've had to, at any point, try and convince anybody, uh, you know, on the progressive side that this is important, which is great. I mean, actually, when we launched, uh, I remember I remember wondering exactly that. I was thinking, are people going to, you know, look, I, I was a chief election official. Like, I can nerd out on this, talk to you about all sorts of automatic voter registration, all that sort of stuff. But... I didn't know whether or not other people were gonna were gonna understand why this was so important, or at least feel it the way I did. So the day we launched in February, uh, we did a press release. I tweeted about it. We didn't. We have a big email list. We didn't send an email. We didn't send a solicitation. Sent out a press release. That was it. Uh, by the end of that day, we had and all we had was a splash page that frankly wasn't that easy to navigate and that easy to donate on. By the end of that day. Uh, thousands of people had found, had read the articles, found the page. We had raised $110,000 online by the end of the day. People, yeah, people just got it. And, you know, now, completely separate from the work I'm doing with Let America Vote, uh, you know, the DNC created the Commission to Protect American Democracy from the Trump administration, um, which I think is aptly named, and asked me to chair it. And, and there's, which I'm happy to do, it, there is a real recognition that, um, you know, you can argue about the issues all you want, but if if every eligible voter is not allowed to vote, then they're trying to basically preordain the outcome. And I think everybody gets that, which is yeah. really exciting. Uh, and and as you and you're now three months into Let America Vote, you've got this you know incredible who's who of people behind it, from you know Martin Luther King to uh, you know as, as you said, I mean leaders all around the country. And you're also chairing this commission with the DNC, with Senator Booker and. Uh, and uh, Secretary of State Grimes and other people from around the country. So as you engage in all these efforts, five years from now, 10 years from now, what does success look like? What does democracy look like if Let America Vote and this commission has, has achieved its success? To me, and, and it's not just us, there's a whole bunch of other great groups that are in this space um, and, and obviously predate us. To me, it's just when we don't have to talk about access to voting anymore, right? I mean. Like, we live in a day and age where Americans understandably have a certain degree of what I would refer to as a customer expectation when it comes to their daily interactions, right? Like, how many of you in the last week have done some sort of transaction online, right? And keep your hands up if it was on your phone. Okay, all right, cool, so put your hands down. So like, like right now, I can, I can get out my phone and I could tell it that I wanna make sure that when I get home tomorrow night, I could watch tonight's Royals game on my TV, right? I could do that. Now, I'm not saying that you should be able to vote that way, but I'm saying that does create a certain level of expectation. So that's why when folks look at, okay, I gotta go wait in line for two, two and a half hours uh, to vote, and we still have elections on a Tuesday, uh, because that was the day before market day, you know? I mean, that's why. I don't know if you know that, uh, you know, it's, yeah. Um, so when you look at all of that, and, and let America vote, I should be clear, is not, like, what our objective is, at least now, is, is to work on the defensive side in, in the sense of we are trying to stop 
bad things from happening. But there are a lot of groups on the offense. And, and so my, my hope is that just us and everybody else in this space can get to the point where, look, I believe election administration is about um, three things. It's about making sure only eligible voters vote. It's also about making sure every eligible voter has the opportunity to vote. And finally, and I guess, you know, number two and three are the controversial points to the Republicans. Number three is making sure people meet as much convenience as possible at the polls. Like, we're going to make better decisions as a country when more people are in on the decisions. And so that, to me, is success. So uh, I would... I would uh I would not be doing my job as, as your interviewer if I didn't ask the question that is, I'm sure, on almost many, many people's minds here. Uh, and we'll just say it more broadly, what's next for you? We're really excited that you're doing Let America Vote. I love it. I think it's a critical, I think it's a game changer. I think the leadership you've brought to this issue is, is, is fantastic. What's next? Uh, thanks. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. No, look, uh, look we, it's flattering, obviously, that people, that people ask. Uh, we live in a time where Donald Trump's the President of the United States and the Republicans control Congress. So I think we live in a time where everybody who has a problem with that, which it turned out was 54% of voters, uh, you know, should grab an oar, and that's what I'm doing, just grab an oar and do everything you can. And so, look, I'm trying to make sure we still hold elections in this country. And, uh, and if I'm <laughs> successful in that, maybe one day I'll be in one, so. Yeah, after, uh after November, I actually looked just to check. The president can't cancel elections. <laughs> so we're, we've got that. <laughs> this is, we have this on video, right? Yeah. <laughs> good, good. Um, I, hope, I hope we never need that. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, th thank you, Jason, uh, for coming to Michigan uh, and, and inspiring us again. Um, and all of you, please, um, please, Please get involved in Let America Vote. It's doing incredible stuff around the country. Uh, and at the end of the day, as we saw this past November, and as we're reminded in every election, who votes makes all the decisions uh, in, in who governs. So uh, thank you for your leadership. Thank you, Jocelyn. Uh, thank you all. And uh, we'll see you. Thanks.